I'm Alfonso Mendoza, host of the My Ed Tech Life podcast, a part of the Education Podcast Network. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hey, welcome back. Steve here. And today I'm talking with John Skimbari, an improvement coach who supports teachers and leaders. Awesome talk about instruction and working to help kids achieve. What a cool talk. And you're going to learn so much. And this was a lot of fun. Great stuff. And by, by the way, before you go, it would be so cool if you would go to my website, stephenmaletto.com slash reviews and left a review. Could you do that for me? That would be so awesome. Thanks so much. You're cool. Enjoy the show. Boone Titanium Rings, found on the web at boonrings.com, is an affiliate partner of Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12. And I'm also a customer. I have this really cool ring that's got these carved pistons and, and stars in it. I love it. They make rings of titanium that are carved, laser cut, and engraved, as well as they have inlays of many types of materials like meteorite, acrylic, wood, carbon fiber, and so many other types. They also have special collections that are incredible designs. One of the top sellers are the Gamer Rings, the Stealth Series, and the Black Zirconium. As a note, they also make earrings, pendants, cufflinks, and for you musicians, they make cool trumpet mouthpieces. Love it. Go to boonrings.com and at checkout, use my code, capital T, capital L, capital L, capital K, number 12, and you'll get 10% off your purchase. So go check them out. I love my ring, and I know that you will love yours. You are listening to Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12, a podcast for educators, helping you help kids achieve their dreams. And now here's Steve with this week's show. Dr. John Simbari is an improvement coach supporting teachers and school leaders in the implementation of best-in-class curriculum, instruction, and assessment practices. Currently, he works with the Center for Educational Innovation, FACTS Education Solutions, Ford University, and NWEA. He also has advised the Ministries of Education of the UAE and East Timor. John, it's so great to have you here today. We're going to be talking about all kinds of things dealing with instruction, and I uh, just wanted to um, get you on the program. So say hi to everybody. Hi, Steve. I'm really excited to be here, so thank you for having me. Well, I'm glad that you're here. And uh, John, before we you know, get into education, let's talk about Tropical fish. Now, the audience doesn't know why in the world this question would be coming up, but if they could see you right now, they would see a wall of tanks and uh, and uh, and a bunch of plants and a bunch of little critters, you know, swimming around inside those tanks. So, so uh, I love this backdrop for an interview. It's awesome because I have I have a few fish my of my own, and uh, um, just let's talk a little bit real quick about this. When did you start, and what fish do you keep? Yeah, I just love aquariums, uh, Steve. They're, they're my zen place. Uh, I really find them relaxing and a, and a fun hobby to do after I've been working in schools. That's awesome. And I got to tell you, you know, keeping fish on my own, one of the things I like to do if I've had a tough day is to, to sit where I can face the fish tank and watch them kind of frolic around in their 3D environment that they have there as they're kind of hanging out. And I have a you know, a model of a shipwreck in there and they go in and out of the, the, the hole in the side and stuff like that. And it just, you know, it makes you forget your cares. <laughs> it does. It does. And I have nano fish, very similar to the fish that you keep. Uh, so if I'm going to keep an aquarium, I want it to be, like I said, my, my, my place of zen. 
I know some people have Oscars and Piranha, but uh, that's my, not my definition of, uh, of a peaceful aquarium. I'll just put it that way. <laughs> I understand that. You know, uh, one of my, my theories and uh, um, oh, policies is uh, that if I'm going to cry because the fish died, that's not a fish I want to buy. So <laughs> <laughs> it can get expensive. Very much so. You start talking about Oscars. Once they get up there, big enough size, you know, you start going, you know, and uh, saltwater fish. Now that's a whole nother planet. So uh, they're beautiful, but uh, oh my gosh. So yeah, and I, I uh, I've never had saltwater. I've stuck with uh, freshwater, partially because I just think fresh freshwater is so much easier to take care of. And like you said, the cost, and at least the freshwater fish in most cases at least the fish that I'm keeping are farm raised. So I'm not feeling guilty that I'm destroying the environment at the same time that I'm engaging in my hobby. That's very cool. That's very cool. Yeah. I, um, that's always a good point there too. And I, you know, and it's, it's nice to, uh, especially I've learned uh, over the years, cause I've had tanks since I was a little kid, but uh, you know, somewhere as an adult, I learned how to really, take care of them instead of you know, kind of faking it, you know, pretending that I was, you know, throw a little bit of food here, a lot of food there, that type of thing. And, uh, um, and as I figured that out, it's, it, it's a lot of fun. And it's, uh, you know, it's, if I could just figure out how to get the fish to clean their own tank, I'd be in good shape. I know. I know. In fact, you're reminding me, I'm, I'm feeling guilty because it's time for uh, a gravel vacuuming uh, as we speak. So uh, maybe after our conversation today, that might be what I do this evening. Awesome. Well, I didn't mean to guilt you into that. That's not what my point was. So, uh, but I, I do want to tell you this, that, uh, you know, it, uh, it's, it's nice and relaxing watching the fish. So, uh, you know, if I, oh, I'm back. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I was, if I wander off, maybe it's because uh, I'm watching the fish. So never mind. Um, Mind control. There. <laughs> More power to you. <laughs> Thanks. Well, that's awesome. Thanks for sharing with me about the tropical fish. I love it. I think it's cool. And uh, um, keep going at that uh, hobby. That's awesome stuff. You know. So let's shift to you working as a teacher. When you were a teacher, what did you like best about working with kids? Sure. So one thing I like best as a teacher, and something that I actually miss as a consultant working with adults is seeing those aha moments. So, you know, seeing the light bulb go off uh, in a kid's eyes or, you know, just in their demeanor where they finally get something. Uh, I love that because that did show me that, you know, I'm not so arrogant to think that, you know, these kids ultimately need me. They have parents, they have community members, you know, there are other teachers that they have. So I'm just a, a small piece of their a complete learning journey. But still, when I saw those, you know, light bulbs go off, it told me that I was in the right place and in the right profession because I really took something away from seeing that. That's excellent. Yeah, there's there's nothing better than that. You know, that's just something that, uh, you know, I, I've always missed that as a teacher. You know, when you get them, they're getting excited about it or they're getting into it or whether they're all cool and they still they might control how they show their excitement, but you can tell <laughs> yeah. that they're, yes, they're interested in this. That's awesome. And, uh, and I mean, like and I mean, Steve, even when you work with adults, I mean, you do still see those light bulb moments go off and, and no disrespect to the adults I work with, but it's, it's just not the same thrill as with the kids. <laughs> That's funny. Yes. 
Um, I do understand that too. Yes, they uh, um, they have their own issues. You know, when the, the kids might be uh, trying to be cool about being interested, uh, the adults they have their own coolness factor that they're worried about. Should I show that I'm interested in this? This is oh. <laughs> Oh, no, no, John's going to give me more information on this topic. Yes. I, don't, I don't want to do more than I have to. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> exactly. No, even I would say, Steve, even most adults I work with are excited to, to continue improving their teaching practice. Uh, but again, just seeing those kids and seeing them getting excited about learning more about a topic to the point where you can't even keep up with giving them resources and they're starting to get resources and read on their own. Uh, I think that's why many of us originally go into the professional teaching. Too cool. Too cool. You're so right too. I, you know, I, let's talk about you as an educational consultant. I mean, one of the thing, things you focus on is best instructional practices. So tell me what you mean by best practices. Sure. So as in any industry, Steve, you have consultants that can do a variety of things. And in education, it's no different. I mean, we have folks that advise schools on financing or scheduling or even classroom management procedures. And I do a little bit of that. But basically, my brand or who I am as an educational consultant is really about three things, curriculum, instruction, and assessment. So when I say that I help schools with best practice in curriculum instruction and assessment. What I mean are those practices and systems that are really gonna lead to better student achievement overall. And even if students are not necessarily achieving where we want them to be achieving, our schools, our schools, excuse me, still helping students to grow. And, you know, and that I think is important, really both those markers. Ultimate achievement, yeah, that's where we wanna go with and where we want to get but if we are working in a community where students are struggling uh, then we do want to also look at growth because that's what tells us our schools are doing the right thing when it comes to again those academic practices that research shows do lead to ultimately student success love it i love it that's good stuff the uh you know, there's, and just to kind of piggyback off of something we said earlier, I mean, I, the adults really do get into it when they, when they get into it and you realize that you've engaged them or that they're, they're beyond uh, doing it because they were told to be in this meeting. It's cool. <laughs> and yeah. what you're talking about right there is as they, they see that this is something they don't know much about, or it's something that help will help them with the kids. Then, then those light bulbs go off and it's cool. It's cool. Exactly. And in coaching, Steve, and I'm sure you know this too in the work you do in education, a coach is definitely going to have more success if it's a partnership, the coach and the teacher that is in, involved in this coaching uh, relationship or, or a school leader involved in this uh, coaching relationship. And I have found that if you can find what that person you're working with, what they want to improve on, it's just going to make them all the more interested and committed. And so when we talk about those best practices, really, you know, where, where's the hook? Like what's the person interested in? 
So for example, are they interested in being able to take standards and break them down into rigorous learning intention? So I've definitely gotten some people on board because that's what they were looking to do. They were looking to increase the rigor of the learning. And other folks I've worked with, it was more about the instructional strategies or it is more about the instructional strategies. And I'm a big fan, as a matter of fact, with uh, Robert Marzano's nine highly effective instructional strategies because research shows that those strategies do work in helping students retain information and knowledge. So I've worked with educators that have really looked for ways to engage students in learning through fun activities. And then also there are other educators, and, and I see this more in my work with NWEA, but even as, a, as an ongoing coach, as an independent coach in school, and that is some folks are really focused on assessment. And how do we use assessment, not just end of year formal paper and pencil tests, but how do we use ongoing formative assessment to really decide what standards we should be focusing on and teaching in our classes. So really, all three of those things, curriculum instruction assessment, they go hand in hand with one another. And so if I can get a, a person I'm working with excited about curriculum, I know that eventually I will be able to turn them on to uh, best teaching practices as well as ways in which to use assessment so that we can be assured that what we're teaching our kids is really what they need. That's awesome. That's awesome. They, uh, you know, it's, you know, being able to have the opportunities to learn new skills and try new things to try and work with the kids and whether it's new or just new to you, um, it's, you know, because one of the things I've learned is that, you know, each year, every class, every kid, they're all different. And just because uh, you learned something to work with a group of kids before doesn't mean it's going to work now. <laughs> exactly. And you're exactly right in that you just basically, you know, gave the pitch line for why assessment is important. Because you might have the curriculum, right? And that curriculum might be your curriculum for the next five years. But even though that's your curriculum, it doesn't mean that your students coming in next year are going to have exactly the same content or skill needs as the kids you have now. So that is why it is important to be doing that continual assessment to figure out which parts of that curriculum we are going to teach and which parts our students already know. So, so thank you for bringing that up because uh, you're, you're preaching to the choir. Cool. Very cool. <laughs> nice. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about, uh, all right, we've we talked in and around some of this stuff. So now let's get a little more specific. I mean, do you have a favorite uh, practice to talk about, to use, to show people, um, to help with kids who are behind? Sure. So really, I try to help teachers, not just with students who are behind, but also with students at target readiness level and beyond it, really, because and that really gets to differentiation and personalization of the learning, which is where we need to be going with our students if we want more of our students to achieve. Really, if we want all of our students to achieve, we definitely have to figure out how to give the students what they need. So to your question about, you know, what practices work with students below target readiness, I'm a big fan, Steve, of, and by the way, many of these strategies 
might also just be our, our not might also are also just good teaching practices, but they're particularly important for those students who are below standard. So I'm a big fan of note taking, particularly the use of Cornell notes, partially because if you're using a standardized note taking format, Steve, that really helps the teacher to figure out which students are good on their own and could complete that Cornell notes scaffold without really much intervention from the teacher and which students might need some guiding questions written in the margin, which students might need some of the key vocabulary that's going to be presented in the unit, presented to them beforehand so they can learn that vocabulary. I think those strategies are very important for students uh, below target readiness. I also think giving directions in a multitude or a multiple number of ways. So I, I know as teachers, we like to talk on the, off the cuff and, and, and speak quickly and say, okay, this is what I need you to do now. And that's fine. But in addition to telling students what they're about to do, I think there is a utility in having directions written out, how-to directions for things that a teacher is going to be going over and over again and again with students, such as when students are reading. Uh, in my work, Steve, I often hear now, which is good, teachers saying, I want you to annotate. I want you to annotate. Annotate the text. But still, if the students don't know exactly what it is they're annotating, it ends up just looking like one big sheet of yellow highlighter, which might help them. I think there are other ways to annotate that are much more useful and going to be able to help the student parse out specific parts of text. So again, does the teacher use an annotation strategy? Is that strategy posted in the classroom as an anchor chart uh, so students can consistently refer to it back, uh, over and over again? Uh, I think all of those are important for uh, lower level students, uh, graphic organizers, Again, much like Cornell notes, that those can be pre-populated with some information. I would not pre-populate for your general learners or for your advanced learners. I would still give them the, the organizer. I would still give them the Cornell notes. But as I was saying, I wouldn't be augmenting the content for those students very much. I would be limiting that to the students who need that scaffold. Gotcha. Very cool. So, so since you kind of brought it up, I, I got to ask you, so have you got some strategies you like to use with the, the kids that uh, are uh, just need some more acceleration or they're, they're on target, they're up there at the top and uh, they're in danger of being bored? Exactly. And again, Steve, while I think it's okay that teachers use high-level students to serve as mentors for students at target readiness or below, I get concerned when teachers leave it at that, when those higher level or higher achieving students are always the tutors, if you will, for their peers, because that's helping their peers. And it might be helping them reinforce what they themselves already know, because as we know, being able to teach others is a, a great way to retain and learn information. It's not, in my opinion, excelling them or, or moving them beyond what they already know. So one strategy that I love using with 
teachers with advanced students is getting teachers to have students doing more compare and contrast. So for example, if I'm working in a class where they are noting where students are reading an article to note the author's point of view, and this in fact actually came up last week, that's great, but why not allow your advanced students to start comparing and contrasting multiple articles you read in the class that dealt with author's point of view. Or if you're looking at particular ways in which an author argues a position, maybe have your advanced students comparing and contrasting different author styles in the way that they are you know, arguing or defending a position. So I think compare and contrast of multiple sources, multiple texts is a, is a great way to engage your more advanced students. I think too, if we, we should start as educators, Steve, involving our students in the process of their own self-assessment their own portfolio development and, and have them be making the decisions as to how certain work in their portfolio demonstrates not just proficiency, but excellence and why um, can we get those, those advanced students uh, really, this is for all students, but especially advanced students. Can we get them talking about what their next steps are before we as teachers jump in and tell students what those next steps are? Are students able to do that? And clearly, some of our more advanced learners, our more gifted students, I think are able to start doing that sooner rather than later. So rather than waiting for all students to be ready to self-assess, although I do think there are ways to design your classroom activities so all students are self-assessing, but rather than waiting for everyone to be exactly ready to do that, we shouldn't forget about those advanced kids who are ready to do it now. And so I would also say bring that in, as well as having students create their own assessments. Why is the teacher the only one creating the assessment? If students could articulate why they should be evaluated on a certain piece of content or a certain skill set, why does that need to be the, the sole domain of the teacher? because that brings in additional evaluation and critical thinking skills that I think advanced students are able to demonstrate now. Excellent. Yeah. And I think it's one of the things that uh, sometimes we forget about is that uh, because we get focused on the kids who are behind. And, and so one of the things that happens is that if you do have the more advanced or the kids that are a little more accelerated or a lot more who uh, then suddenly can find themselves being used as a helper in the class, which the teacher means well, but the kids falling behind or getting bored or, you know, just kind of like, maybe I'll just sit back here and see if I can read by myself, you know? Exactly. And you bring up a very good point, Steve, when you talk about the boredom factor. Yes, sometimes classroom management could be about student special needs or certain things going on in the home. But a lot of times misbehavior is because either the student is frustrated and can't keep up with the learning, hence what you need to do with your, you know, to help your lower level kids, 
and the boredom factor for your advanced kids. Because if your students aren't fully engaged, they're going to act up. A, a clear example of that, I was in a science classroom the other week, and uh, the teacher had them working on an experiment. And many of the students were either on pace with what the teacher expected them to be, I mean, at the rate that the teacher expected them to be working. Some were a little slower in working, but there was one group that got done very early. And there wasn't something else that those students were doing. They were just done. And one of those boys started walking around the classroom, bothering the other students who hadn't finished. So if that teacher had brought in some additional task or activity or an additional way that that group could have applied the knowledge they learned in that experiment, I don't think that same situation would have happened. Yeah, that's that, I, that's powerful stuff. I, I agree with you. I think you're right. I, in, you know, and just a note, I've watched my share. Oh, Steve, I just want to say, I don't mean to throw teachers under the bus when I say that. A simple hack for that is that teacher could have just had a, an additional activity in case students got done with the lab as it, as it was designed. I'm sorry, I cut you off. Oh, you're fine. You're fine. That was much better than what I was going to say. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, what were you going to say? No, I was just I was just going to say that it, I think that we have to be prepared to de- to realize you know the differences in the kids because sometimes it gets easier to do a, take a different route and there's some kids who you you just you're just going to lose them um, and it's at it's at all ends of the spectrum because it, you just got to be prepared to deal with that and that's one of the challenges I think of of the teacher in the classroom is that we. You know, we have to figure out how to make sure that we're, um, you know, really seeing the kids who they are for, uh, you know, wh- where they excel and where they don't and where they may need some help and where they, they may not. And, and I think that's where we get into those best practices. And I think it's cool. And now, Steve, I have a question for you. Oh. Because I'd love to hear how you handle the following. And that question is this. What pushback do you get from teachers when you recommend differentiation, what do you tell them? Like, how do you get them to get on board? I mean, I have my ways, but I'm, I'm curious to hear yours. I'm sorry. Did you say something? No, just kidding. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes. The, uh, um, so, you know, it's basically what I like to do is just explain, because I'm a perfect example of, uh, in a lot of classes of, uh, you know, I'm the kid who, um, I'm trying to figure out what game the teacher's playing. Okay, this is who I was. And what I'm trying to do is, if you'll play this game with me, then I will, uh, I'll figure you out, and all I'm going to learn is what is good for the test. All right? So I'm not, I'm not really focused on learning. I'm figuring out whether you play games. And when I say that, I don't mean mon- Monopoly and things like that. Uh, <laughs> you know, I mean simply that uh, you're willing to let me, uh, if I turn in my work and I'm quiet, and I sit towards the front of the class, and I never cause you issues, that I get the benefit of the doubt on everything. Um, if I, you know, I, I, this is the type of kid I am. So what happens is that you've got to find out whether I'm really paying attention to you or not. And that's the big challenge with me, because I'm, I'm the good, quiet kid that's, that tells his friends, do not talk to me during class, <laughs> because I'm going to be focused this way. And unless you come over and look at my notebook, you don't know whether I'm writing notes 
or whether I'm drawing, you know, my latest superhero and battling, you know, the warlord of Mars <laughs> or something. And, you know, and it's, and that's who I am. And one of the things that I like to do is, is to identify, you know, thoughts about the different kids that are in class and, and just kind of engage teachers in the idea of this is why you need strategies, you know, and because you have the different types of kids. I mean, I, you know, I had a friend of mine who, he saw it as a challenge to, to be the first one completed with everything. All right. So if, you know, if we were in class together in math, I mean, it drove me nuts when we were in geometry and he, he'd like, all right, I'm done next, you know? And I'm like, what the heck? <laughs> and he was brilliant. Um, and then I've had another friend who's on the other end. who <laughs> He didn't get it at all. And, uh, and basically I like identifying the, the, the kids the different personalities they run into. And so let's talk about what, you know, what we would come up with to try and uh, identify as opposed to trying to say, you know, every lesson you have to have, you know, you have to demonstrate dis- dif- differentiation or something like this. I think you have to help the, the adults come to the conclusion that kids are different. <laughs> exactly. And, and you said a lot there. So, when you were talking about your friend on the upper end who just wanted to get the work done, I think that is a great example to use with teachers because even I will say to teachers who push back on the thought of differentiation a little bit, look, just because somebody is capable or is gifted doesn't necessarily mean they're going to jump at the, tan- at the chance to demonstrate that. They're kids. So they're only going to do many of them, not all kids. Some kids have that innate just love of learning, right? But the majority are going to sit there and do exactly what you ask them to do. So if they're capable of more, but you're only asking them to do what everyone else is doing, it's going to help you, you know, maintain order in the moment because there's almost like an unwritten contract, right? Where, the student and the teacher agree, if I sit here and do not cause any problems to any other students, I can doodle, but as long as it's me and I'm not impacting someone else, which is gonna get me noticed, you're gonna let me just doodle, right? So, so that, you're exactly right. That's one of the reasons, that, and very similar reason I use in, in explaining to teachers why we need to do differentiation. But to your other point, when you said, I think, when you said it's important, though, that teachers understand that we're not asking necessarily to differentiate everything. Again, I think you're right on, and it's about who are the kids in your class. So, for example, my work with NWEA, you know, NWEA goes to a lot of trouble in developing different data reports that school leaders and teachers can use to determine exactly who is sitting in those seats in your class. And if you have kids who are all on the lower end, then no, you're not going to be wanting to necessarily design activities on the upper end or vice versa. You know, if you have all your kids towards the the center of learning and the upper end, you're not going to be spending as much time differentiating for the lower end. So I'm glad you brought that up too, because I don't want teachers and educators listening to this thinking, oh, there, there they go again, talking about how we have to differentiate and there's no time. Uh, and I'm also not saying 
that educators need 30 different lesson plans for 30 different kids. It's about, all right, these students fit into this academic readiness group. The kids fit into this other academic readiness group. What are those basic strategies, either on the lower end or on the upper end, that I'm going to utilize with this group of kids over here? Now, that doesn't mean you can't personalize. That's the beauty of technology, right? That's the beauty of then having students individually and looking at videos on a different math process. So yes, you can still do individual one-on-one personalization, but let's start first with thinking about differentiation and what are different clusters of kids need. Yeah, I think that's and I and I think that's sometimes the the pushback is just because yeah, it's difficult and it it can be cumbersome and it can be, you know, and especially if you have somebody breathing down in your neck who doesn't really know how to differentiate, who's talking to you about just do it, you know. And you know, if that's happening, then that's bad too. But at the same time, if you make it real for them about the children in their classroom and I want to go back to me. I mean, I this is not I'm not tooting my horn here or something like that. But I mean, I was a, I was a good kid. I got good grades and I'm an AB student. All right. And once in a while, I'm going to, I'm going to flash out the C because, uh, you know, it's a class that I was allowed to play the game where they never bothered to see if I was getting it or not. And, you know, if you let me do that, then I'm going to focus on the class I like. And, but most of the time I'm an AB student and uh, I'm a good kid. I don't get in trouble. I don't feel like going home because my parents were divorced. If I go home, I'm going to get in trouble at one place, and I'm going to go to the other home, and I'm going to get in trouble at that place. So it ain't happening, all right? And, um, but what I was really good at was pretending like I, un- like I was paying attention. And, you know, if you, if you let me play that game, whereas if you're doing some stuff like, uh, um, you know, checking for understanding and things like that, which we're going to get into in a minute. So hang on to that thought. <laughs> um, but if you're doing some stuff like that, you know, you're going to catch Steve who's, I mean, my, one of my favorite all time favorite cartoon, um, you know, Sunday comic type thing is Calvin Hobbes. And, you know, there's so often, if you've ever seen that, you know, so often, um, Calvin is off in space fighting aliens and stuff like this. And the teacher's actually talking to him when, you know, when you see it. And I love it because, you know, I wasn't that far out in the space. But, I, you know, I was a lot of times doing my work for other classes and things like that when it looked like I, <laughs> I was paying attention in that classroom. Um, you know, that's. And, you know, Steve, it's not just kids. We do that as adults, too. Do you know how many professional development sessions I've sat in as a peer or we're facilitating where the adults nod to you and say they understand, and yet they might be texting, they might be grading papers, you you just don't know. So we talk about kids needing to to be checked in or or reined in, but I I just think human beings in general need those check-in times. Oh, you're so right. And just a note, it's funny, when uh, from the other side of the – of the, the the wall there you're the you're the administrator and you're looking out and you're talking with everybody and it's like okay I don't know if you guys know this or not but I can see the blue light flashing on your face from whether it's your laptop or your tablet <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly so, anyway exactly. um so 
since we're talking about this type of stuff, I mean, how do we help? You know, what's what's a good way to work with teachers to get them to? And you kind of you kind of went this direction for a little bit, but to get them to learn the best practices or to want to learn the best practices. I mean, what do you, what do you think is something this side of, of mind control? <laughs> Just kidding. Um, yeah. Don't send any mail to me. All right. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> but this, you know, what, what's a good way of, of working with the teachers to, to learn those best practices? Sure. So if a teacher, whether that teacher has access to good coaching or not, I think knowing who, the experts are in, in the field of education, particularly within subfields of education. So if we're talking checking for understanding, I'm a big fan of Doug LaMob and Teach Like a Champion. I, I don't think there's a day, Steve, that goes by when I'm coaching in a school where I'm not recommending one of his main strategies, particularly when it comes for checking for understanding. For example, it is quite common when a teacher asks a student a question, the student responds, I don't know. And more often than not, the teacher will go and ask another student and forget all about that student that did not know. What that student is telling me is tell, or telling us is one of several things. One, they truly don't know, which is very much a possibility, which we need to get to the root of. Or it's a behavior issue where they just don't want to participate. Or it could be a combination of the two, where they really don't know, but they don't want to look like they don't know, so they're going to act indifferent, right? So in that instance, I tell folks, I say, oh, you should look at Doug Lamont's Teach Like a Champion strategy, uh, teach, like, teach Like a Champion book, and look at the no opt-out strategy in particular, which is... When a student says, I don't know, you go to another student and then you go back to that student. And even if that student has still not formulated an answer, it's okay if they even repeat what the student before them just said, right? So that's a strategy and, and a person that I'm always going back to, right? Uh, and people don't necessarily need a coach for that. They just need to be plugged in in terms of who are those people uh, providing good resource value out there, right? Whether they're finding this out by subscribing to, say, educational leadership or, you know, or another uh, publication. I'm a big fan of Kim Marshall's uh, Marshall Memo, which really talks about what's going on on a weekly basis in education. So that's one way I think folks could not only be helping themselves in increasing their own knowledge as teachers, which doesn't require necessarily having a coach, but if one is lucky to have someone like me working with them, then I think there's an opportunity to be co-planning with your coach, embedding these, for example, check for understanding strategies. Uh, I'm also a big fan of cold calling, uh, getting rid of volunteers, and doing that kindly and gently, but still cold calling. Uh, I'm also a big fan of polling and signaling activities to check for understanding. And Steve, I'll also add, I, I also really like when teachers chunk the learning, meaning they talk for five minutes, then they stop, then they engage their students to see what they understood, and then they continue. So 
all of those are checking for understanding strategies, which people would know about if they stay plugged in to who's writing on these topics out there. And then, like I was saying, if they have a coach, then that coach could really be working with them to do co-planning and embedding those checking for understanding strategies throughout a lesson. That coach could actually be co-teaching with them. That's a possibility. And that coach could also be, hopefully through their feedback, giving feedback on how a teacher could modify their practice. That's awesome. And I got to tell you something. You just, you just made me think of something that, uh, you know, it's uh, one of the things I, I think is so cool is that throughout this world, coaches are everywhere. And for some reason, and, and I mean, whether it's sports, they have coaches that do specific things. Whether it's musicians, they have coaches. Whether it's writers, they have coaches. You know, whatever it is, politicians have coaches. Some of them they don't listen to, but hey, you know, and, you know, and what's crazy though, is that somehow in education, you know, it's kind of like, um, you'll notice the longer you talk to me, I'm a big fan of uh, um, cartoons that I hope at one, you know, at some point, the young people listening uh, recognize that uh, there was electricity when I was born. But, (laughs) you know, um, if you ever watched uh, the Charlie Brown uh, Halloween um, special, you know, um, what'd you get? I got uh, two cookies. What'd you get? Charlie Brown, I got a rock, you know, and Sometimes, so what What happened today when you were meeting with the administrator? He signed me a, a coach. I got a coach. You know, it's like, no, they should yeah. be like, I got a coach. This is cool. And, yeah. but instead, it's almost like that, I got a rock. Um, how, do, how do we break that sort of, what, what do you, you got any thoughts about that? Yeah, that's a good question. I think often it's the way coaching is introduced to teaching staff. You know, if it's if it's presented or the coach before the coach even goes in, is presented as an extra support, as an ally to help improve not just coaching or not just teaching in one class, but across the school, where it's not seen as being because someone did something wrong, but rather how do we use coaching to improve instruction across our school or across our system? I think that helps to make it more palatable. I think what we were talking about before, Steve, if as much as you can draw the teacher into, or the school leader, into what they want to focus on, the better, because then it's coming from a position of what they want to work on, and it's not you telling them, you need to do this, or you need to do that, but something they truly want support in. I think that helps, and time, really. You know, the more time you can work with someone and the more you can show them that you're trustworthy, that you are there not as an I got you, but to provide additional resources, a different additional information, uh, that you are following up with them, that it's not just you observing and leaving and there being, you know, a very quick exchange. Because a lot of times, a verbal exchange, because a lot of times teachers are busy. So you might not even have time to do that two-minute verbal exchange, right? But if you are developing your coaching schedule where, let's say, one day you observe and the next day it's a, it's a virtual feedback session, right? That way, and that, that's close to the time you observed, I think the more people get to know you and the more you get to know them, you start knowing each other not just as coach and teacher, 
but as John and whoever the teacher's name is, right? Um, that helps. Um, those are those are the strategies I've used. And again, Steve, I'm not going to say that every single partnership has been golden uh, because, you know, on the other hand, there are sometimes reasons why coaches are brought into a school. And the reality is coaches are there because of administration. So sometimes it is a fine line between not being an, not being an ally like a union rep, right? But an ally in terms of these are the resources you could use to improve your craft so that when you are really evaluated on this, you have some ammunition with you, right? On the other hand, I would not have work if I did not report back to administrators, not in terms of individual names, but, oh, these are the practices, speaking of best practices, that your teachers are doing really well, and this is an area of growth. So how can I now work with you, school administrator, to develop the professional development calendar so we could be assured that everyone gets support in this area. I love that. I love it. I love it. You know, it's, um, it, it's interesting because you know, that's, I went to, as a principal, I went to places to make change. That's how I marketed myself. And um, if I had it to do all over again, I'd probably still do it, but I would be a lot less naive about <laughs> some of the battles I would be facing. Um, <clears throat> but with that being said, it's kind of interesting. And I gotta, I, I'm hoping you'll go down this path with me because this is interesting because um, something you just mentioned made me think about this. And I didn't think of this. Uh, just, it just always comes up because I run into this a lot. So like I've started expanding the different podcasts that I listen to. And uh, a couple of them are, are just general um teachers talking about teaching type podcasts that I may not have found before. And, and so I've been looking for different ones and I found two today that uh, somebody really does not like administrators. Um, <laughs> Cause that's what they, they both were like, wow, um, this is rough. And uh, you know, and I'm pretty sure I probably had my share of people throwing darts at a picture of my face or something like this, but uh, it, have you got any thoughts about how we can kind of, you know, because one of the things that a lot of the research says is that uh, um, teachers who talk about having the best time teaching are in schools where they have leaders that allow them to do these things. And uh, yeah. um, got any thoughts about how we kind of get out of this mindset of it's administrator versus teacher tonight on WWE? <laughs> yeah. I think I think you, you hit upon something vitally important because if we're going to improve schools, all stakeholders need to be vested in that process, right? Teachers need to be vested in that process, administrators, and students and families. And you could almost make the case that the external community also needs to be involved in that process. So I agree with you. If we, if we stay in this world of admin versus teachers versus parents, we're not going to see the student achievement and growth that I would argue almost every educator, regardless of whether they're a teacher or an administrator or a parent even, a stakeholder, we all want to see that for our kids, right? So if we don't get out of this mindset, we're not going to see that for our kids. So um, thank you for bringing this up. Now, and I thought about this too, like ways around this or ways to, to start working better collaboratively. And 
I think it is a case of giving some teacher or giving teachers more auto- more autonomy, but autonomy within limits. So what is the curriculum? What are the standards? Uh, are you using student achievement data to determine what your students need to know? Now, you as the teacher, the art of that comes in in the case of, all right, now that you know what your students need to know and be able to do, the art or the, or the creativity or the autonomy comes in around how are you going to do that? How are you as the teacher going to do that to, to give your kids the love, the joy of learning and still get them to meet those benchmarks that they have to meet? I mean, st- standardized testing is not going away, right? So, so I, I think, too, if administrators can understand that and provide teachers the opportunity for autonomy and how they achieve things and set up the structures to allow teachers to learn from one another. So are there professional learning community processes built into the school? Is there a collaborative walkthrough? Is there, are there teachers doing lesson study where they collectively come up with developing a lesson, one teaches it, they debrief, another one teaches it, uh, is there book study? And then also, too, Steve, if administrators are allowing teachers to sit on school leadership teams, and not just as you know tokens, but really being involved in making those decisions. Uh, and then how do you bring in families into that as well? I think that should go some way in, in, in showing teachers that administrators are not the devil that we, we do all have the same goal, which is student achievement and growth. And yet at the same time, we do want teachers to be creative. We wanna see them as the professionals that they are. But on the other hand, teachers do need to understand that administrators are accountable for student growth and achievement. And not just in one class, but across the school. So I think if we have those systems in place where Again, teachers not only have autonomy, but leadership opportunities and an opportunity for admin and teachers to really be talking with one another about what their roles are and what their responsibility is. Hopefully, that'll bridge the divide somewhat. I'm hopeful, Steve. I'm, I'm hopeful with you, John. I'm hopeful with you because I, I think, uh, I mean, it's there's, there's plenty of schools out there where, I mean, the, it shows exactly that that right relationship happens and, and they're able to accomplish so much together. And uh, it's unfortunate that uh, in many places it's the opposite though. They're, they're at odds with each other and it's part of the, you know, there's a natural part of the role that happens between administrator and teacher that is, <laughs> that sets them at odds. If, if. It's yeah. What scares me, cause I do a lot of social media content. I write on LinkedIn a lot. And the comments I get back sometimes go something like, teachers do this, or teachers are this way, administrators do this, administrators are that way. When in reality, there are great teachers and there are not so great teachers. There are great administrators and there are not so great administrators. I, I worry about what you were talking about, this, this um, I, I guess the term is siloing, right? 
of roles. Yeah, I think you're because right. Because I do think it's more so about the individual and how creative they are as teachers or admin uh, in terms of, you know, really making sure that students achieve and grow, right? Um, and not getting caught up in this us versus them, oh, we'll never succeed mentality. Now, that doesn't mean I don't think there are tremendous challenges out there in public education these days, made all the more complicated by COVID. But I think if we start looking at people as individuals with individual strengths and opportunities for growth, no matter where they sit in school building, um, like I said, I'm hopeful that we'll start seeing uh, people working together more than being at odds with one another. Because who suffers or students suffer. Exactly. Exactly. Great stuff. I, I got to ask this before we go away, especially because I promised at the very beginning, at some point we talk about it, but we're almost out of time here. We got, uh, um, and we've touched base a little bit on checking for understanding. And I, I just got to come back to it so that we kind of finish up with that and say, do you have any favorite uh, um, things that you like to talk about? in? Because I'm a prime example of, as a kid, there are classes that the ones I did best in were the ones where the teacher didn't play the game. And I was and I wasn't allowed to just sit there and be in my own little world. Um, the ones I did best in were the teachers who actually figured out whether I was, you know, asking me questions and, and giving me opportunities to show whether I was getting it or not. I mean, what did, what, what thoughts do you have about checking for understanding and if you have any favorite ways of doing it? Oh, I do, Steve, I do. So when I go in and I co-plan a lesson with teachers, I'm a big fan of a four-part lesson structure. Introduction, five minutes. You could call it a mini less, a mini lecture or a guided practice, about 10 minutes, no more than 15. The bulk of learning should then be the next section of a lesson, which is student practice time. Now that, yes, the student's working individually, but we need to move beyond that and really starting and start to get students working with their peers. So more peer-to-peer student activities and engagement. And then the last part of the lesson is your summary of your lesson. How do you know if your students learned what it was you wanted them to learn, right? So you can embed checking for understanding strategies at all four parts of your lesson. So that way, young Steve can't sit there and get away with not participating because there's no way that they will be able to do that because the lesson is is particularly structured to avoid that. So during an introduction, have students come in, do some kind of do now anticipatory set, right? Get the kids into the learning and then say, all right, before I cold call one or two students to tell me what you wrote, turn and talk to your partner about your do now. Then using a randomizer app on your phone. So it's not even you arbitrarily picking students, but truly randomizing it or their names on individual popsicle sticks if the kids are younger. You pull out a popsicle stick. All right, Steve, what did you and your partner talk about? Better yet, you tell me what your partner said, right? So that's the introduction. And you're checking for understanding at the same time because you're listening to what they actually talked about. Then in the guided practice, when it's more you just giving them content, You know, rather than talking for 30 minutes straight, you know, which is often what happens, talk for that 10-minute period of time 
and ask students the following cold-called questions. What did I just say, Steve? What do you need to do? Now, I will tell you, Steve, the pushback I get from that sometimes is, oh, that, that's so draconian. It puts the students on the spot. Well, you could do it this way. You could say, before I cold call someone to tell me what you're going to do next, turn and talk to someone and make sure you understand what it is we're going to do next, because I'm going to ask you what we're going to do next, right? So that could be one way. But at a certain point, Steve, I do think our kids need to be put on the spot because we're put on the spot in life, right? So that's, and then, so those very quick checking for understanding questions. What do I want you to do? How are you going to do it? Not deep questions like what is the meaning of life? That's not the purpose of questioning in the, the guided practice, right? It's those short, quick questions. I'll add, people could hold up answers on individual whiteboards. You could do a poll. You know, is the right answer before I release you, just to make sure you understand what it is I want you to need, what I need you to do. Is the answer A, B, C, or D? Hold up your card. Great, five of you got it right. Two of you, why did you say B? Oh, I could see where that confusion comes in. No, it's actually this, right? Then during the student practice time, the checking for understanding strategy is the graphic organizer that hopefully students are using when they're engaging in that peer-to-peer -peer activity. And in the summary, you could use an they could do an exit ticket, like the three, two, one, tell me three things you learned today, two things you still have a question about, one thing you want to shout out a classmate on that they did really well on. I don't know what it, exactly, but yeah, I think folk, I think your listeners will get the picture there. So you could do an exit ticket. You could do a whip around. We're going to go really quick, one by one. Tell me one thing you learned. Steve, John, Joe, Sue, right? Um, those are all great strategies for checking for understanding, but I do want your listeners to understand they're not all equal in level of complexity. And you do want something a little meatier during that student-to-student -student engagement time. That's why you want to use your notes, your Cornell notes, your graphic organizers, deep discussion questions that you could give your kids in advance. Um, the other stuff, the exit tickets, the do-nows, the turn-and-talks, those are really quick strategies. That was awesome, John. I mean, that was that – was, uh, the that's great stuff, very usable and all, all kinds of stuff. And I, I got to tell you, just like you're saying, and I, I honestly think that that's how you keep the kids honest about whether they're really getting it or not, because you have to, you have to push them to find out because otherwise kids are good at playing that game of John, are you sure you may not call you John, Mr. Mulatto, are you sure you're going to want to ask me that question? Because, uh, you know, I, I, I sit here and I smile at you and I do, I laugh at your jokes and I, you know, yeah, yeah. And it gets you through it's all that, of that it's nonsense. It's that unwritten contract we talked about before, yeah. Steve. That unwritten contract we have to break. Because while it is allowing you, so you think, to teach in the moment, it's not giving that student what that student, and that student might be happy about that right now, but that student's not going to be happy with that teacher in 20 years when they don't need to do something in life and career. You're so right. You're so, so right. And with me, where it came to haunt me was uh, in uh, Calc 2. So uh, <laughs> Calc 2, the <laughs> professor didn't let me uh, sit there and pretend like I didn't want Steve, why don't you come on up to the board and let's see how you work this out. Uh, 
Steve, why don't you come see me at my office? Yeah. <laughs> but class. you know, you're bringing up you're bringing up something else that's very important. There needs to be a culture established in the classroom where mistakes are not just tolerated, but they're actually embraced. Because if you know, I'm not a very good math student. Right. I, I, I also was not, I don't even know if I got up to calculus to be perfect. I think I did pre-cal. Right. I'm very much a humanities teacher. I was social studies all the way. Right. But still, you know, if I was going to be in a math class, I would have fear. I would have panic in a math class where there was cold calling. But if I knew that my teacher understood that I was doing my best or trying my best, if I truly was, then I would not necessarily mind making those mistakes in front of others. But that culture really needs to be established. And we as educators need to be very careful in not even inadvertently punishing those mistakes, if that makes sense. Makes perfect sense. Makes perfect sense. Uh, this is a great conversation, John. This is cool. This is I could I could you sure you got don't have another hour? We <laughs> <we're>, <laughs> part two. Exactly. We're this is awesome conversation. And I, I gotta ask you, John, if someone wanted to know more as we finish up here, um, more about you and what you do, where would you send them? I would definitely send them to my LinkedIn account. I'm on LinkedIn quite often. Uh, I enjoy writing on LinkedIn, posting hopefully relevant content for folks. Uh, that is where they can find me. A lot of the things we discussed about today, I'm posting specific strategies to address them on my LinkedIn account. So that's definitely the easiest and best way to reach me. Awesome. And I will remind people in my show notes about that. That's cool. So I got one last question for you, John, and it goes like this. Uh, do you have a teacher in your past who made a difference with you, with you, with in your life? If so, if given the chance to say thank you, who would it be, and what would you say? <laughs> I could be here all day, Steve, because you know I think different teachers at different times have helped me along the way, right? Like I, I don't know who said this, but a teacher never knows when one's influence starts and when when one's influence ends. So. There are many teachers that have influenced me or helped me along the way. So very, and I apologize to anyone I don't mention if they're listening to this, it doesn't mean I forgot you. I'll, I'll talk about you on another podcast somewhere, but uh, Mr. Ross, my geometry teacher, because I was doing so horribly, but he eventually graded me on my growth and my progress, not on my earlier assignments where I was getting D's and F's. So he really put the emphasis on growth and learning than the overall grade, right? And that encouraged me to continue to study and, and to try to improve my math skills. If he had just graded me, you know, uh, the typical, you know, average method, I would have definitely gotten a D or even failed that course, right? Which would not have shown the progress and the growth and the learning that I did do. So shout out to him, shout out to uh, eighth grade uh, Mr. Riddle, who always brought in real world relevance when it came to talking about social studies and historical events, and to my sixth grade teacher, Mrs. Christie, because I was, I was a late bloomer, Steve, let's just say that, and you know, my social skills could have improved and I was definitely a bullied kid. 
And she was ahead of her time when it came to the importance of social emotional learning and really being cognizant of the needs of children holistically. And uh, I think she definitely went and kicked some butts on my behalf. So, uh, so. very nice. <laughs> thank her for that. <laughs> very nice. Thanks so much, John. That was awesome. I appreciate you identifying so many. That's cool. I, I love that. Yeah. And it's been great talking with you. Thanks for talking about coaching teachers and best practices and instruction and, and uh, all kinds of good stuff there. Even uh, trying to figure out how to get admin, admin and teachers to get along together, which I like that too. So um, I'm wishing you the very best in all you do. Thanks, Steve. I really enjoyed being here. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is excited to be a member of Voice Ed Radio. Voice Ed Radio, your voice is right here. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. The opinions expressed on Teaching Learning Leading K-12 are those of the guests and hosts. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is intended to share ideas, advice, and suggestions for classroom teachers and school administrators. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is produced for educational purposes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll share it with your friends.